Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Thursday, uh, December the 14th, uh, 2023, and uh, we're broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, We'll have dispatches on the intervention of Yemen resistance forces in expressing solidarity with the Palestinians in Gaza. The Israeli Defense Forces uh, soldiers have engaged in raids Janine, over the last three days, we'll have details on that as well. Kenya and China are enhancing their relations, and a delegation of women uh, from Niger have visited ECOWAS headquarters in Abuja, the Federal Republic of Nigeria. In the second hour, we look at the way in which the Gaza siege is viewed outside the West. Later, we ask, are boycotts against Israel effective? Finally, the demand for reparations are escalating on the African continent. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll continue with our musical interlude uh, of the orchestra of Umkaltum. This is a opera entitled Lalette Hob. Let's listen in.
Yeah. 
Lelet Hub uh, with uh, Um Kaltum and her orchestra, uh, music uh, from North Africa. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Thursday, uh, December the 14th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And our lead story uh, deals uh, with the situation uh, in and around Yemen. In an interview uh, for Bloomberg's Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks says the United States is working with its allies and partners to halt the increased operations by the Yemeni armed forces. The United States is collaborating with partners to launch a global campaign to halt an increase uh, in resistance operations by the Yemeni armed forces that have raised concerns about uh, commercial goods moving through one of the world's most crucial waterways. In an interview with Bloomberg, uh, Deputy Defense Secretary Kathleen Hicks stated that freedom of navigation, quote, is a rule of the international system that should be upheld end quote, uh, calling the recent operations and, quote, international problem, unquote, that the U.S. was working with allies and partners to resolve. Last week, the Yemeni armed forces announced the introduction of a new actionable decision in support of Gaza, which will see the prohibition of all ships bound to the occupation entity, regardless of their nationality, from passing through the Arabian and Red Seas until food, and medicine sufficient to the needs of the population enter the besieged strip. In late November, Yemeni resistance vowed to continue its operations against Israel until it ceases its aggression on Gaza and its crimes against the Palestinian people. Implementing previous warnings, the Yemeni armed forces captured last month the Israeli Galaxy leader vessels in the Red Sea via a naval operation landing on his deck before leading uh, to uh, the sea off of the coast of Hodaida. The army also successfully targeted two Israeli ships earlier this month using a drone and missiles while forcing several shipping vessels to reroute or entirely change course away from the Red Sea, subsequently increasing delivery periods, coast, and insurance rates. On Monday afternoon, the Yemeni armed forces conducted an operation on the Norwegian oil tanker, the Stritna. The U.S. military reported material damage from the attack with no casualties. While Hicks stated that an international reaction is on the way, she did not provide a date or designate it as a task force. Officials in the Biden administration are unsure how to respond to the recent series of operations since they desperately fear being drawn into a regional confrontation. Concurrently, Tim Linderking, the U.S. Special Envoy for Yemen, has recently met uh, with the Saudi-backed government in Yemen and has also discussed the U.S. response to the Yemeni Armed Forces operations with Saudi officials. The United States has reportedly stepped in again to hurdle Yemen's peace process, a report published uh, by The Guardian reveals. Citing unnamed diplomats, the publication said the United States has threatened the Sana'a government 
that its negotiated peace plan with Saudi Arabia, which has been handed to the UN peace envoy, will fail if the Yemeni armed forces attacks on ships heading to Israel continue. And in other news, in the occupied territories, the remnants left behind by Israeli occupation soldiers can be seen all over Janine, where they have graffitied insulting signs and desecrated homes and places of worship in the city. Footage of Israeli occupation forces desecrating a mosque in the occupied West Bank city of Janine has flooded social media platforms in the past few hours. One of the Israeli occupation soldiers stood at the mosque's podium and mocked the Muslim call for para, while others captured the insulting moment with their smartphones. Moreover, his mockery was amplified by the mosque's loudspeakers. The Israeli Haaretz newspaper also reported that an Israeli occupation soldier was captured on video singing a song celebrating the Jewish Hanukkah holiday from within the mosque's premises after Muslim worshipers were forcibly evicted uh, from the location. This coincides with a three-day-long Israeli aggression on the city of Jenin and the Jenin refugee camp, which has, been, which has seen a number of executions, drone strikes targeting civilians, and hundreds of arbitrary detainments. Israeli soldiers were also captured on video lightning Hanukkah menorahs, uh, which in a nine-branch candle broom uh, with the homes of Palestinians. To aid uh, to their provocative and insulting actions, Israeli occupation soldiers also graffitied the Star of David, the icon situated in the center of the Israeli flag all over the walls of Jenin. At least 11 Palestinians were killed uh, by Israeli occupation soldiers throughout the aggression. While the city's hospitals have been blockaded by occupation forces, limiting the work of medical and emergency workers. The occupation soldiers have wreaked havoc in the city, destroying its infrastructure and terrorizing its residents. This comes in the context of a broader fascist policy to suppress support for the Palestinian resistance in Gaza, all over occupied Palestine, and Janine resistance fighters continue to resist occupation forces throughout their incursions into the city. Despite the minimal capabilities that resistance fighters in the West Bank possess. And you're listening to the Pan African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan African Journal. On the African continent, the bilateral cooperation between Kenya and China that was formalized in December 1963 has covered a critical milestone, unleashing fruitful results for both sides, a senior Kenyan official has said. <coughs> Masela Muda Vadis, uh, Kenya's prime cabinet secretary, who also doubles up as Minister for Foreign and Diasporic Affairs, noted that six decades of Kenya-China cooperation has impacted positively on the East African nation in the diverse spheres, including trade, infrastructural development, cultural, and academic exchanges. We are celebrating 60 years of our independence, and that is a period we have enjoyed cordial relations with the people of China, Mudavadi said during a recent interview with Chinese media organizations in the Kenyan capital of Nairobi. Kenya's engagement with China has been a, at the head of states level, uh, Mudavadi said, 
adding that President William Ruto and two of his predecessors took deliberate steps to foster ties with Beijing. Under uh, the China's proposed Belt and Road Initiative, Kenya has benefited from the construction of modern infrastructure projects uh, like the Tika Superhighway, the 472-kilometer Mombasa-Nairobi Standard Gauge Railway, the SDR, the 27.1-kilometer Nairobi Expressway, and several ring roads in the capital, Mutavati said. President Ruto was among African leaders who attended the third Belt and Road Forum in Beijing from October 17th through the 18th. He met Chinese President Xi Jinping, and the two leaders agreed to further cooperation on digital economy and clean energy, Mutavati said. And uh, finally, on Monday, uh, December the 11th, a delegation of seven women from the Republic of Niger paid a courtesy call on the Commissioner for Political Affairs, Peace and Security, Ambassador Dr. Abdel Fatou Moussa, at uh, Niger House, ECOWAS Annex in Abuja, Nigeria. The women delegation, led uh, by Madame Ibrahim Mariam Al Nasser, former Minister of Labor and Civil Service, included Dr. Saadi Sulehi, a medical doctor and public health advocate, Madame Lula Aisati Bintou of the Committee of Women's Political Mentors, Dr. Musa Fatimata, former Minister of Public Health, Madame Barry Bibata, a lawyer at the Niamey Bar and former minister, and Madame Ahmed Maryam Musa, a civil society leader. The women expressed their gratitude to the commissioner for granting them the opportunity to meet and discuss the current political crisis and the impact of the sanctions imposed by ECOWAS on Niger following the events of July 26, earlier this year. They bemoaned the humanitarian impact of the sanctions, which has brought untold hardship on the socioeconomic life of the people of Niger, particularly on women and children. On his part, Ambassador Abdel Fatah Musa expressed his regret about the impact of the sanctions on the civilian population, which is a direct consequence of the undemocratic seizure of power by the military. He added that despite numerous attempts by ECOWAS to engage in dialogue, the military authorities have proved inflexible and continue to hold former President Mohamed Bazoum, members of his family, several members of his government hostage. The commissioner, however, assured the delegation of ECOWAS's commitment to support the country in the peaceful resolution of the crisis as decided during the 64th Ordinary Summit of the Authority of Heads of State and Government held on December 10th in Abuja, Nigeria. <clears throat> and uh, the women delegation called on ECOWAS to deepen the dialogue with all strata of the Nigerian society and expressed a strong desire to see ECOWAS include women in the dialogue and mediation efforts towards the resolution of the crisis in Niger. They further called on ECOWAS to expedite the review process of the Supplementary Protocol on Democracy and Good Governance, taking into consideration the current realities. They particularly pleaded with ECOWAS to consider the review of the sanctions regime, which have a negative impact on the entire socioeconomic fabric of the society with its attendant humanitarian crisis. 
With that, uh, we'll conclude this segment of the Pan-African Newswire of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you would like to uh, have uh, access to this program, uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, all you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at um, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. This is uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Let's take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
And that was uh, the voice of the legendary Phyllis Hyman. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Thursday, December the 14th, 2023. And we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We're going to go to the question of how is the Palestinian struggle viewed outside of the Western imperialist countries? Let's listen uh, to uh, this report. An overwhelming call of the United Nations for a ceasefire in Gaza. Israel and the U.S. among the few voting against the resolution. How isolated are both nations from most of the world which opposes the war? Can international opposition have any impact? This is Inside Story. Hello, welcome to the program. I'm Adrian Finnegan. The Hamas killing of 1,147 people in southern Israel on October the 7th caused global outrage. Since then, though, 15 times as many Palestinians, mostly women and children, have been killed in a merciless bombing campaign by one of the world's most powerful militaries, backed by the U.S. and Western allies. These countries proclaim support for human rights and international law both of which Israel tramples on daily in Gaza and the occupied West Bank. So how is Western support for Israel viewed elsewhere? Could the Gaza war change the current world order? Is support for Israel damaging the West? We'll be asking these questions and more of our guests in just a few moments. But first, this report from Kara Legg on how Israel and the U.S. have found themselves in a minority of world opinion. Months of bombing and a worsening humanitarian crisis. Despite growing calls for a halt to Israel's war on Gaza, the world's most powerful body, the United Nations Security Council, has failed to put a stop to Israel's violence. With the U.S. wielding its veto power, standing alone in blocking resolutions for a ceasefire. But the demands have not stopped, moving to the U.N. General Assembly. I use my recent attendance at the Doha Forum and every other platform I can to encourage cooperation among states with the same singular goal in mind, to make peace for all. In the name of humanity, I ask you all once again, stop this violence now. The Assembly spoke loud and clear, an overwhelming vote in favor of a resolution, seeking a humanitarian ceasefire and the release of all captives from Gaza. 153 member states supported it, 21 more than the last time the Assembly called for a humanitarian truce. War-torn Ukraine was among the few countries to abstain, refusing to call for a halt to a war backed by its Western allies. The U.S. and Israel, however, voted against the resolution. We support speaking out with one voice to condemn Hamas for his terrorist actions on October 7th. Why is that so hard? To say unequivocally that murdering babies and gunning down parents in front of their children is horrific. The exploitation of the Palestinians has made the UN a moral stain on humanity. Why are you continuing to allow them to make the United Nations irrelevant? 
The resolution is non-binding, but it carries political weight and reflects the global perspective of the war. The Arab and Islamic countries who spearheaded the effort have pledged to use this as momentum to keep pushing for a ceasefire. The Palestinian Authority has welcomed the resolution and urged countries to pressure Israel to adopt the ceasefire. As ground battles intensify in northern Gaza, Israel has carried out some of the heaviest bombing in days in the south. The UN vote indicates Israel's growing diplomatic isolation. U.S. President Joe Biden has warned it risks losing international support because of its, quote, indiscriminate bombing. Even close ally Australia backed the U.N. resolution in a rare split with the U.S. While the world waits to see if the U.N. Security Council will hold another vote, people on the streets, far from the corridors of Western power, are making their voices heard. Kara Legg, Al Jazeera for Inside Story. So let's bring in our guests for today's discussion. From Paris, we're joined by Tania Porras, a former career diplomat in Venezuela and a policy advisor specializing in Latin American economics and geopolitics. From Cape Town, South Africa, we're joined by Melani Velavud, uh, who's a former South African ambassador and member of parliament in Nelson Mandela's administration. And here in Doha uh, is uh, Sami Hermes, associate professor at Northwestern University in Qatar. He specializes in social movements, the state and security in the Arab world. A warm welcome to you all. Sami, let's start with you. Um, how significant is this UN General Assembly vote? It, it's highly unlikely to lead to a binding resolution in the Security Council anytime soon, is it? I mean, is it the best the UN can do? And what relevance is this vote to someone suffering under the constant bombardment in Gaza? No, I mean, on one hand, it's, uh, it's great that we've seen a shift of 20 countries uh, in the last month. But, of course, it's not, uh, you know, uh, quick enough. And, uh, of course, it's uh, wonderful to see that the U.S. is now isolated. I think that's the first step, um, is that it's isolated. And we hope that the next resolution that comes out um, will see a change and the U.S. won't be able to uh, protect, uh, you know, its interests and Israel any anymore. Uh, but in a sense, it, it is also, um, as, you know, the Israeli ambassador to the U.N. said, right, He it's total doublespeak. I mean, he blames the Palestinians for everything, but they're the ones who are constantly uh, breaking international law. Um, and so, in a way, the, the UN has become uh, ineffectual. Uh, but I think what, what is really important is this movement, um, what you see is uh, international global solidarity actually sort of moving this dial. And I think that's what's really important is that uh, we see that, you know, even this resolution, it's not put on the table. And uh, Antonio Guterres, he did not uh, invoke Article 99 because Russia told him or China told him what, what there's, this movement we're seeing is because of global public opinion and pressure on the streets, in uh, the hallways of power, um, in, you know, in all sorts of ways that, uh, you know, we can uh, talk, talk about in, in this, uh, you know, in the next minutes. But I, I think that that is really where, um, where we should really take note, uh, that none of this would happen if it wasn't for this public pressure. Melani, 10 nations voted against, including the U.S., the UK and Germany were among the 10 nations who abstained. How isolated does this vote 
leave the U.S., picking up on, on what, from what Sammy was saying, what message does it send? And is that message likely to be heeded? And if so, when? I mean, the message is very, very strong, right? Um, it's not often that the UN goes on something so strongly um, and agree on something that strongly. So the message is very clear. The question is, what will it result in? Um, the moral message is there. And I mean, also interesting for me, living in Africa, only three countries did not vote for it, um, two abstained, and it was only Liberia who voted against it. And um, so, you know, even in a continent as diverse as Africa, there is, seems to be a very, very strong message. And one has to ask, how can they not be? You know, how can one not ask for a ceasefire um, after everything that we've seen and, 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 you know, that we've seen on our television screens now for so long? Um, but the question is, of course, that with the Biden administration, um, are they actually going to heed this message? And, well, one would think that he would increasingly start thinking about the fact that he is losing a lot of support also in America from the liberal left. Um, but, it, you know, it seems that this relationship with, with Israel just keeps on holding them in some way, both financially um, and also diplomatically, seems to consistently still support Israel in this war. Tamir, um, picking up on that, allies are supposed to speak supportedly of allies, at least in public, and take a more honest and robust tone in private. What are we to make then of President Biden's remarks that Israel's indiscriminate bombing of Gaza is losing its public support uh, and that PM Prime Minister Netanyahu needs to change his government and his stance on a two-state solution? Where is that coming from? Well, I, I believe that uh, President Biden is uh, probably speaking about his own public opinion because Israel's public opinion, I mean, Israel's support all over the world has never really existed on the Palestinian cause. I think the, the vote at the UN National, uh, General Assembly uh, resolution on, on, Pal on Palestine reflects what the, uh, I would say, historic opinion in the global south is about uh, the conflict and the, uh, the fate of the Palestinian people and the rights of the Palestinian people. It is in the, in the West, in the United States, in the, uh, in the uh, European Union, where governments have been supportive of Israel, uh, somehow in disconnect uh, with uh, a growing uh, portion of their own public opinions who are, of course, appalled at the, uh, at the uh, barbaric uh, campaign of bombing that has been uh, uh, that has been imposed over Gaza. And of course, it is their own stance, their own stance uh, uh, supporting Israel uh, despite of these, uh, I would say, uh, proofs that are, that are uh, visible to, the, to uh, all public opinion and to the world that is creating an internal problem in uh, uh, Western uh, societies and for Western governments, such as the US government of uh, President Joe Biden. And, and I, I, I think he's referring to that public opinion that uh, doesn't understand how governments in the West are uh, um, supportive of uh, the government of Israel, uh, irrespectively of uh, its actions that are clearly violating international law and, and of course, committing war crimes. Let's um, discuss the, the, the points that you bring up there with, with Sami. Uh, Sami, what are, we, what are we to make of the, the, the stark differences in position on Israel and its bombing of Gaza? Uh, of governments, I'm not talking about public opinion here now, but governments in the global south uh, compared to those richer nations in the north. 
Look, the the whole issue really stems from the fact that uh, Israel is uh, ultimately a European settler colony. So it makes perfect sense that uh, Europeans, so the richer countries, Europeans, Americans, are going to support uh, their their settlers. And so I think this is this is a really important point that keeps getting missed. And this is why uh, there is a, a a real interest uh, from the U.S. Uh, to support uh, the Israeli state because it supports its you know its interests in in the region. And I you know I would go as far as to say that uh, we talk about ethnic cleansing and genocide, but really I think what we see here is is the U.S. Uh, actively involved in this, and it's just Israeli soldiers doing the, you know, the labor of it. But I, I think this is why you don't see Global South countries supporting uh, Israel. They're, they're not, you know, it, it isn't a Global South settler colony. So I think this is, um, and and I think one one other thing I'd want to say on on President Biden's remarks is that, you know, he's he's said things to this effect in the last month that you know things are are, are uh, public opinion is uh, shifting and so on. Um, I, I find these as sort of diversions. They're just uh, ways of to sort of buy buy time. I mean, you know, you can keep saying this, but ultimately the U.S. can turn off. Uh, the sort of the weapon supplies, it continues to do so even uh, even in light of these massive atrocities. Um, and it could, you know, turn this off. And according to Israeli generals and former generals, they would tell you that it would end this war very quickly if that stops. Milani, is this shattering the reputation of nations who continue to stand by Israel, the war on Gaza, I, I mean? And uh, what does this, this conflict mean for international law? Who in future polices nation-state actors when they appear to be able to act with impunity? Well, let me just first say in terms of what the previous speaker was saying, I think funny is the name. Um, you know, of course, that South Africa would very much echo that on an official level, um, exactly that, that, you know, South Africa is very aware, and the ANC government in particular, how Israel had very close relationships with Israel, I started with the apartheid government um, for many years and how many of the weapons that were actually used to kill anti-apartheid activists came either from Israel directly or through Israel. And so, you know, then, of course, also that the ANC government can see how the uh, Palestinian cause, the fight for freedom um, against land occupation, etc., very much mirrors their own battle for, for so many decades for freedom in South Africa. And Mandela, of course, famously said that South Africans wouldn't be free um, until uh, the Palestinian people are also free. Um, so I just wanted to, to echo that. In terms of international law, you know, as an African and somebody from the Global South, the Global South has always said and has always pointed out for a very long time, for, well, not always, but certainly for decades, um, the hypocrisy when it comes to international law and the application of international law, in particular when it comes to a superpower like America, who likes to play this sort of global policeman, and yet when the rules um, have to apply to them or to countries that they support, they often change the rules or somehow want to reinterpret the, 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 the rules. And, and that's not something new for, for people in the global south. We are very aware of that. Um, and, and so the question is not a new question. It is just whether this is finally the tipping point where the world will 
see that, um, you know, to use the, the children's story, that the king actually has no clothes on when it comes to America um, in, this, in this moral global um, question. Tamir, is this a tipping point? To what extent is this a defining moment, not just for the UN, but the current world order and countries that claim to stand for defending human rights? Well, yeah, it, it is a test. Definitely, it is a test, but it is reassuring to see that uh, in the General Assembly of, Na of the United Nations, such a unanimous uh, stance in defense of the rights of the Palestinian people uh, in this particular case, but that also um, um, says a lot about the aspiration of the global south and the international community at large to have uh, an international, I would say, international realm that um, is organized around international law, so that every country has to abide to international law. And in this case, it is very clear that the uh, behavior of, of Israel is, of course, opposed to, uh, to those values. At the same time, in the United Nations, for instance, once one uh, country like Israel behaves in such a manner, there should be, you know, the uh, recourse to the uh, United Nations Security Council uh, where, you know, the members of the Security Council would be um, uh, able to impose sanctions, international sanctions in this case, to the country that is violating international law. But we all know that there, you know, the political logic and the geopolitical logic um, uh, imposes itself because the U United States would uh, exercise its veto rights. So it's, it's a moment where at the same time you see this very large aspiration but also where you can show the limits of the current international architecture, that uh, the tools are there, but there are also political tools for those countries who want to impose a unilateral vision of, uh, of, of or a unilateral um, uh, force in, in the international realm. So it becomes very clear to the, I would say, the international public opinion, what needs to be changed in this architecture for once again, uh, uh, a, a more balanced and, and, and peaceful international arena to, uh, to exist. So, Tamir, is, is the UN currently a complete waste of time, nothing but a, a debating theater of, of wishes and dreams? I mean, its critics have been saying for a long time that it's not fit for purpose. Its credibility, uh, and once again, that of the Security Council, is on the line here right now, isn't it? I mean, if the UN can't stop the indiscriminate killing of, of innocents, it's as good as useless. Well, it, 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 I, I understand and share that frustration, but at the same time, it's the only tool available for small countries, those who cannot impose force. So, if, I mean, this is, this is again, this is real politic. And, and indeed, in the face of real politic, the UN cannot do much. But at least it is a forum where that injustice can be underlined, and I think it's very important that these is uh, that, that you know that it, the ability to the international for the international community and the global south to express its opinion and to, un, and to unveil the double standards and the injustices is in itself something that is uh, worthy of keeping. But I understand, of course, the frustration that these tools uh, do not allow uh, the international community to stop the killing and, and the oppression over the Palestinian people. Melanie, do you, do you want to come in there and, and, uh, and expand upon on what uh, uh, Tamir was saying? 
Well, I mean, again, from South Africa, Africa, and I think more generally the, the global south has for a very, very long time complained and pointed out that a body like, particularly the UN Security Council, is not representative of the whole globe, and neither does it serve the need and the interests of, of a very large section, two-thirds of the world's population. And so they have been critical about this for so long. But I do, and of course, also like bodies of the ICC, and it, and it, and it is worthwhile mentioning that um, South Africa has asked um, quite a while ago already the International Criminal Court to issue a warrant of arrest for President Netanyahu for poor war crimes. And it's going to be, I think, from a from a southern perspective, it's going to be very interesting to see what the ICC will do. Um, the, 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 but I do agree that you know at the moment we don't actually have something better than the UN um, yet to, to um, hold countries to account. Um, of course, on an economic level, this is why BRICS, you have seen such a big expansion and development around BRICS, where more than 40 countries wanted to be part of this. Um, and six um, quite big countries were um, who entered BRICS this year and will start being full partners on the 1st of January. And that is all part of this effort of the Global South and also of Africa to form a balancing power um, um, or a balance against the sort of superpower of particularly America, um, who seems to often not act in the interest of, of the Global South. Sammy, um after the General Assembly vote, Israel's envoy called the UN a moral stain on humanity. And as far as public global opinion is concerned, I mean, you could argue that he has a point, not for the reasons that, that he was actually arguing at the time, but many people are so frustrated with the UN's apparent impotence while people are, are dying every hour in Gaza. Yes, I think, you know, listening to your other uh, two guests, the one thing that uh, strikes me is that, uh, and you've said this as well, is that this is not the first time we talk about the UN uh, not meeting its uh, responsibilities. But I think this is one of those moments where uh, Global South countries could really take the charge. And, you know, I think the ICC is a defunct institution, and they, I think, Global South countries should be thinking about alternative institutions and just bypassing, uh, you know, the, the Western powers. But of course, you know, uh, that is uh, in some ways uh, dream talk. But I yeah, think I was, I was going to say, how, 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 Sammy, would that, how would that work? Well, I mean, I, I think you have 150 nations that have agreed on something. They can actually take action and say, you know, we're going, we're going to impose a no-fly zone on uh, on Israel and uh, put that on the table as a threat. And let's let's see where that goes. I mean, you know, I, I assume, I, I imagine that things would probably eventually de-escalate from there rather than escalate into a global war. I don't think that that's where it would go, but the, the threat of something like that, or, you know, thinking about an alternative international criminal court to sort of, you know, put these things on the table, not allow Israeli politicians to travel around like as if they're not committed war crimes. I think some of these things are, are really important ways that we could, you know, put, put pressure to Think about new institutions because uh, we just, you know, we get to this point every time. This is not the first time on Palestine that we've talked about. It's uh, the incapacity of the UN, but we find ourselves here every time. 
um, and it's you know it's tiring, and Palestinians are dying in the meantime. And yeah. when they're not dying in grand, great numbers as they are in Gaza, they're dying of slow genocide, uh, where that you see, for example, in the West Bank, right, where uh, their territory is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And so you know, but but under the radar, uh, nobody cares. Nobody cared about the prisoners until October 7. And now, you know, people are talking about Palestinian prisoners. To me, Sammy's got a point, hasn't he? I mean, you know, this talk of, of it being high time for, for new institutions is all well and good. But in the meantime, people, people are dying now. Absolutely. Absolutely. But again, um, um, it, 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 it is ultimately, if you will, because we move from the framework of, and we have shown the limits of uh, international institutions and international law, but it's probably then to the public opinions in the countries that are supporting this uh, uh, horrendous policies. Uh, for instance, the, uh, the public opinion in the United States uh, should put pressure on its government. I mean, it's, it's, uh, political action is always difficult. It, it requires uh, building appropriate tools. Uh, why aren't Western politicians um, um, put to, uh, to the scrutiny by their own public opinions on, on the supporting of, of Israel? Uh, why don't we have a, a broader or deeper discussion in the countries that are responsible ultimately for supporting Israel in this? This is probably the way, you know, it is probably the national public opinion that need to do uh, the work in order to change the policies of their own countries, which are uh, backing uh, and, and probably the, the very same people in Israel. Again, um, uh, wh wh where is the public opinion in Israel and is it supportive of, of this horrendous campaign? Again, I, I, I think this, this is a time again to, uh, to uh, focus on where things can be changed immediately in order to reach what we all hope for, uh, which is a ceasefire and then a political resolution that takes into account the rights of the Palestinian people. Milani, uh, final word to you then. Uh, do you have any hope that, that that could happen, that this can be brought to a conclusion quickly without further suffering and death? Well, probably not that quickly, but certainly I never underestimate the strength of ordinary people um, on their government if they start uniting. And I agree, this is now public opinion that has to really push because um, even, for example, I think countries should turn their attention now to the U.S. as well, not only to Israel, because we can see that it's not really working with Israel. But I think if countries like, for example, in the European Union, etc., start putting pressure also on America, that could also help in um, more speedily bringing forth a peaceful resolution, um, which is so desperately needed um, for the people of Gaza. Melania, you, you really think that it's going to come ultimately down to people power? Well, people pushing their political leaders to stop. Um, you know, the Israelis have made it clear they will not stop until they will, in their view, eradicate Hamas, which I think anybody who's grown up amongst liberation movements know that you cannot stop, uh, in particularly terrorist organizations, by killing them. You have to take away the conditions that will, that motivates them to exist. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, we know that it's not working on, on Israel, but I think um, public opinion needs to push the rest of the world to all stand together. And we've seen many of them have come together now, but the remaining ones, and in this case, particularly America, who funds um, a large extent this war or to a large extent contributes to the funding of this war and also 
albeit then in public, um, still, you know, supports the war. Um, I think we need to, you know, that is what's going to, t- to make the difference, is the pressure to, to, to stop this. Okay. There, we must end our discussion. Many thanks indeed to you all. Sami Hamez, uh, Malani Furavud, and uh, Tamir Poras. And thanks to you for watching. You can see the program again at any time by going to the website at aljazeera.com. For further discussion, join us at our Facebook page on f- at facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. And you can join the conversation on X, our handle at AJ Inside Story from me, Adrian Finnegan, and the whole team here in Doha. Thanks for watching. I'll see you again. Bye for now. Welcome back. And uh, that was a discussion on uh, how uh, the state of Israel is viewed outside of the United States and perhaps some other Western imperialist countries. This is the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And uh, we're here on Thursday, uh, December the 14th, 2023. And uh, we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners uh, for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Sound of uh, the Pointer Sisters and Love Too Good to Last. And here at the Pan African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast, uh, we are spreading information and analysis on many of the burning and pressing issues of our day. We're going to continue uh, with the Palestinian question Are boycotts working? Let's listen in. McDonald's. Starbucks, Domino's, just a few of the companies that have seen their sales nosedive as consumers are calling corporations out for their support of Israel's war on Gaza. How effective are these boycotts? Do they really hit brands and Israel where it hurts? I'm Annalise Borges and this is The Stream. This graphic was put together by the Boycott, Divestments, and Sanctions Movement, which is the voice that we need to be listening to first and foremost when it comes to all these boycotts. Don't do it. 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 Starbucks and H&M are leaving the Moroccan market. I'm going to show you how to make all of the drinks on the menu. You can enjoy them at home without having to spend your money and support Israel. The first brand is Domino's Pizza. Money talks. If a brand starts losing money and it's clear why, they're forced to make changes. I'm a content creator who wants to use her platform, and I don't want to be supporting makeup brands that fund genocide and apartheid. What do Puma, Siemens, and Carrefour have to do with Israel's ongoing war on Gaza? Does abandoning their products really make a difference in bringing the plight of Palestinians to an end? Since October, boycott, divestment, and sanctions have seen a huge surge in global support. The Palestinian-led movement has been calling for pressure on companies that profit from Israel's occupation. But can BDS bring about real change? And if so, how? Here to discuss this with us are Saleh Hijazi, Apartheid Free Policy Coordinator at BDS, who joins us from Ramallah in the Occupied West Bank. Alice Sampson Estepe, formerly the European Campaigns Coordinator for BDS, joining us from Barcelona. And Ahmed Bashbash, the founder and developer of the No Thanks app. He's from Gaza, but is currently in Budapest. Thank you all so much for joining us here on the stream today. Ahmed, I want to start with you. You're very much part of this movement, so much so that you created an app, No Thanks, that helps consumers figure out which brands to boycott. Can you tell us why you actually created this app? The, the idea of it uh, with two different uh, approach. The first approach, it was like when I was in the store, I wanted to buy some stuff, but like um, I didn't know which one to boycott, which one I'm not supposed to buy. So it got to me this idea, but I didn't do anything about it till I, in the 31st, 
uh, of November when I lost my brother. Um, then I was like, okay, I think now it is the time for me to make something for my country as I am in a, uh, abroad and I don't, uh, I'm not in my country and I lost my brother there and before it I lost my sister too. So I was like, okay, I think it is time now to do this, um, the app and make it in their behalf, like a charity work for them. So this was actually motivated by massive personal loss. Uh, today, when you see the app working, uh, do you feel as though this is your way to pay homage to your, to your sister and, and, and to your brother? Yes, actually, I, I, when I saw, like, for example, now I have uh, in the Play Store around 119,000 downloads, and a lot of people are waiting for uh, the iOS version and these things. I feel like I did something to my brother who I lost and my sister. Mm. Even it is like a, a very small thing, but it still count. Um, Sarah, BDS is not an organization, is, is, is a movement, is a, is a tactic that has been around actually for uh, some 20 years. Can you tell us about the origin of this? How did it all start? Uh, BDS started in 2005 uh, by the absolute majority of Palestinian society in Palestine and in uh, forced exile. Uh, it builds on a tradition uh, of Palestinians for many decades of uh, boycotts, uh, civil dis disobedience, uh, nonviolent uh, uh, resistance uh, that goes uh, alongside uh, all forms of trying to rid ourselves of illegal occupation, settler colonialism, uh, and apartheid. Um, and what it does, it, it works on uh, ending complicity by states, corporations, and organizations and institutions uh, in Israeli crimes against uh, the Palestinian people, uh, including the crime against humanity of apartheid, uh, and now uh, the crime of genocide that we are seeing unfolding uh, in, in Gaza. So it looks at uh, companies, institutions, and states that directly uh, contribute uh, to uh, the perpetrating of these crimes uh, against uh, Palestinians here and also enforced exiles by preventing them from their right of return. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to see the dismantling, the end of Israel's settler colonialism uh, and apartheid against our people. Um, Alice, if I can bring you in here, um, what can you tell us about the concrete impact that these campaigns actually have on some of the brands that are targeted along um, throughout the years. Have you seen any kind of policy change on the part of these brands? Uh, first of all, thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me here. It's an honor to be with you. Um, I can speak of a specific example from where I'm based and where I lived in, uh, where I live in and where I'm organized in Barcelona in the Spanish state, where through a huge coalition of civil society for over two years, we're asking the Barcelona City Council to end its relationships with uh, apartheid Israel, with the Israeli government. And I think what we managed to convey the idea that it is impossible to say that you stand in defense of human rights and have relations as normal with um, apartheid Israel. And I think that that's something very important of what BDS organizing and BDS campaign does is create this narrative. Uh, let's remember that we're right now in the world where there's such 
bias in the media defending Israeli crimes. There's so much misinformation that it's so important, the change in narrative that uh, BDS and organizing in solidarity with Palestine does, conveying the idea that Israel is a settler colonial uh, state that applies apartheid to the Palestinian people. So yes, I think that all of this organizing makes it harder for companies to do business as usual with Israel and for states too. Hmm. I, I want to bring it back to um, Ahmed's work and I want to share with you all uh, a clip of the app that he created. <laughs> Ahmed, can you tell us a little bit more about how the app actually works? So the the idea of the app is very simple. Um, I make a logarithms that will take the your the barcode of the product when you scan it and it will take the brand name of it and will compare it to the boycott list of the brands that we, ha we have already. And if there is a match, it will get you that it is in the boycott list and it, uh, like, then you have the, the choose to buy it or not. Um, it's um, um, a qu quite a helpful tool for people who want to join uh, the movement. Saleh, I want to I wanna talk to you a little bit about um, the wider strategy here because um, as Alice mentioned it's very important to um, alter the narrative perhaps there has been one particular narrative that uh, the West has adopted and, and now we're seeing other parts of this story actually highlighted uh, and we've been talking about a lot about the boycotting of brands but BDS also calls for the boycott of cultural and academic institutions and for divestment and sanctions on Israel can you tell us a little bit about these other tactics and how effective they have been yes it's uh bds in, is inspired among other examples uh, uh by the south african struggle uh, against apartheid and and the premise here is that we build people power uh when you have powerful governments and institutions uh siding and supporting with the oppressor that it is through people and people power that we can create uh, a change and, and this change can happen by uh, applying pressure from the grassroots up through mass mobilization. Uh, you know, very important to know, BDS is a, is a movement of millions of people, uh, unions, uh, civil society organizations, grassroots groups all around the world uh, that are joining these campaigns and applying the pressure. Uh, one is consumer boycotts that we've been talking about, but mm -hmm. two is, is uh, you know, what would fall under the S in BDS, is sanctions, is the isolating of apartheid, just like uh, it was the case in, uh, when there was apartheid in, in South Africa. Uh, apartheid South Africa was kicked out of the United Nations. It was not allowed to be in international forums. It was isolated until the apartheid regime was dismantled, and you had a, a state that was then enshrined in democratic state with, with rights for all, freedom, justice, and equality. And this is what we aim for. And so, yes, you have uh, the, the B in the BDS, which is the boycotts, which, you know, the consumer campaigns fall under the divestment, which Alice uh, pointed to. Uh, and, and this includes, for example, city councils uh, divesting from uh, Israel's occupation, illegal settlements and apartheid. Or, for example, 
uh, is saying that they will never contract companies that are either complicit in Israeli crimes or Israeli companies, uh, like, for example, the City Council of, of, of Dublin. Uh, and then you have uh, major corporations uh, and, and some of the successes that we've had over the years uh, includes, for example, most recently G4S, a multinational security company uh, that uh, pulled out of Israel uh, before it, there was the French multinational company Veolia, Orange, and the list goes on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can visit our website for the list of successes. Mm-hmm. And this falls under the D, BDS. But the, 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 the main point here is that when you have an apartheid uh, regime, a settler colonial apartheid regime that is currently perpetrating genocide, uh, against an indigenous population, that you isolate uh, that regime until these crimes end and the system of uh, apartheid is dismantled. Mm. You're talking about isolation. Is it effective uh, on a financial level? Uh, is this uh, actually affecting Israel's economy in any way? Look, it's an accumulative uh, work. Uh, you know, as I was saying, BDS was established in 2005 with uh, many successes uh, to go along with it and many challenges. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's massive repression that is happening against the BDS movement. And these successes accumulate. Um, I've named a, a, a few. You have also, for example, uh, sovereign funds like the one in Norway. You know, these are massive multi-million funds uh, that have, have divested from Israel. Uh, and, and, and we continue to, to work and, and accumulate. So, yes, it does have an impact financially and economically. Uh, and uh, we hope that it will have more so as we go along. But it also has a political uh, impact of isolating uh, apartheid Israel. And, you know, just most recently, you could see, for example, the voting in the UN General Assembly when it came to the ceasefire, how uh, the U.S. and Israel were isolated when it comes to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing in, in terms of, for example, the reaction with the U.S. veto protecting Israel most recently in the Security Council. Mm-hmm. So you can see the isolation working. Alice, do you agree that the uh, political impact is as important, perhaps, as the uh, impact on the economy? Yes, totally. Just to build on what uh, Saleh was saying, and in words of Benjamin Netanyahu himself, there was an article recently published in the Financial Times uh, which said that he'd spoken to um, local Israeli media saying that they need three things from the U.S., munitions, munitions, and munitions, and that there have been huge demonstrations in Western capitals that could, um, that could, uh, that, that concern him because these, uh, this political pressure overseas could threaten the U.S. arms shipments and that Israel had to apply counter pressure because there had been disagreements with the best of its friends. And I think this speaks very clearly when it's Israel's prime minister speaking of this concern, uh, seeing how mass people power, how these huge mobilizations all around the world are affecting and can affect um, Israel. And I think this is part of what we were saying before about this change of narrative. Take one very specific example. It was French um, uh, company Veolia years ago after huge, after tens of millions of euros of losses uh, due to participating in the Jerusalem Light Rail, which is a, a rail that connects illegal Israeli settlements built on Palestinian stolen land between them, after sustained pressure all around the world, Veolia decided um, to leave due to its um, huge losses. There were uh, other companies that uh, applied for the bidding, and last minute they decided to um, to pull back because they, even there was an Israeli newspaper that said that 
Jerusalem is out of the pale. And I think that mm. this is part of what I was saying about this change of narrative, how, as Salah was saying before, Israel is more and more isolated at a political level and economic level. And this is due to mass mobilization all around the world. Mm -hmm. And to go back to the boycotting aspect of this, consumers uh, are going after companies that are directly complicit in the oppression of Palestinians, like HP, whose technology is actually used by Israel to surveil Palestinians in the West Bank. But people are also boycotting companies that endorse Israel's occupation in more subtle ways, like McDonald's, which handed out free meals to IDF soldiers, or Starbucks, which sued its workers' union for posting pro-Palestine content online. Here's just one example. I know you guys don't want to hear it, but Starbucks as a company, nothing to do with the workers, but Starbucks as a company deliberately supports genocide. So when you're paying to take that drink, your dollars are voting to have children killed in Palestine. I know you guys don't want to hear this. I know you're going to stay on your computer and stay deaf, dumb, and blind, but that's what's happening. Uh, Ahmed, I want to ask you, from what you're hearing from your Palestinian friends, perhaps um, back in Gaza, um, are they seeing any of this? And is it important to them uh, in any way that this is actually happening, that people are boycotting these brands, or it doesn't really matter at this stage? To be honest, uh, the impact we are talking about is not about uh, what uh, my friends are seeing. Mm. It is the, uh, the, the whole point of it. It is like to support the pumping that's happening right now in Gaza. Mm. So the, these uh, economic things that it is uh, like the money that is go, go to Israel that goes to buy bombs, buy fuel for the airstrikes. So, um, the people maybe they don't see it, but we are just we don't like to share our part with this genocide. That's the whole point of uh, our side of boycott, mm -hmm. to like not to be a part of uh, this genocide. Not to be a part of the financing so, of these operations. Uh, Saleh, BTS exactly. has faced criticism and and, and opposition in, in the past, um, with some people claiming that the movement is somehow anti-Semitic. Uh, what do you say to that? Well, look, uh, BDS is a movement that is based on uh, principles and, and ethics. Uh, we stand against uh, racism in all its forms. Uh, it, 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 this is quite crucial because otherwise it will not work. Uh, it, it's a human rights movement uh, that is against discrimination. It's against racism, any form of racism. Uh, and actually a quite a crucial and strong component within the movement uh, our uh, organizations like, for example, Jewish Voice for Peace, who have been doing these very inspiring actions in the U.S., uh, uh, aiming at ending uh, the U.S. complicity in uh, Israel's uh, crimes of apartheid and genocide uh, against the Palestinian people. Uh, uh, we are a movement uh, of intersectional struggle. Uh, uh, and, and the basis of this uh, intersectionality are these principles of justice, uh, freedom, uh, and, and equality. Uh, this is why it works. This is why we have millions uh, of people of all, uh, you know, kinds of backgrounds, uh, uh, color, race, uh, uh, ethnicity, uh, religion. Uh, the movement is blind to that, and that's what makes it successful, and you have so many supporting it all around the world. Uh, Alice, uh, as we mentioned at the start of the show, we actually saw a significant increase in support uh, to uh, this movement. Uh, would you say that this is... This represents a, a change in 
the tide here in terms of, of global um, opinion, of public opinion around the world with regards to how Israel treats Palestinians? Yes, definitely. I think we're seeing a huge new wave of solidarity with Palestine. We're seeing people uh, who had never mobilized for Palestine before that are seeing uh, things very clearly uh, right now. I think there's been an effort to always portray what happens in Palestine as something complex and difficult to understand when it's actually very clear Israel is trying to steal uh, Palestinian land by um, removing all Palestinians from this land. And I think that we're seeing workers from all over the world. We're seeing people, we're seeing activists, we're seeing people of conscience, we're seeing more and more institutions and companies saying that not in their name, that they do not want to be part of Israel's um, genocide. And I think that we're seeing very clearly a growing gap between what people on the streets are marching for and are calling for, and then what institutions uh, are doing. And I think it's important that we remember that change throughout history hasn't happened on its own. It's been people organizing and marching and doing lots of work behind the scenes that has enabled uh, change. And with a long list of BDS boycott targets, how do you make sure that the company or institution you're targeting will actually listen? This social media user has some thoughts on the importance of clear demands. So if you're, for example, trying to support the BDS movement, they have specific companies and they also have very specific reasons for each of those companies, right? They can clearly articulate an end condition, right? Boycott of Puma could stop if they no longer sponsored the Israeli football leagues. They're operating in the occupied West Bank. So if you're participating in that boycott, you could say, I am not purchasing clothing from Puma until they no longer sponsor these leagues. The until is a really key phrase there. It lets people see that you're being reasonable, that you have a good reason to not be buying this product. And that it tells the company, and especially if a lot of people say it in this way, that there is potential for them to make more money if they do the right thing than there is for them to continue to do the wrong thing. The goal of a boycott campaign is to make it easier for the company to meet your demands instead of not meet them. Um, Sally, can I get your view on uh, where is this movement heading to next? Well, it's to grow and, and to build on uh, all of this people power that we've seen in reaction to the genocide unfolding in Gaza uh, and to work to, uh, uh, well, have this complicity of, for example, companies like uh, Puma, the insurance company AXA, the computer company HP, uh, um, and their complicity. And, and you know, the, uh, the video you just put there uh, is absolutely right. Uh, we build targeted campaigns uh, that show the complicity and the nature of that complicity. And we also show what uh, the end of the complicity looks like, like in the case of Puma is ending that sponsorship of the Israel Football Association, for example. Uh, we also want to see Israel, again, uh, inspired by struggles all around the world, like the one in South Africa, uh, to be uh, kicked out of international forums of the UN General Assembly, uh, of FIFA, of the uh, Olympics Committee. Apartheid has no place there, and we will build people power to ensure that Israel has no space in these international uh, forums. We want also to see divestment in, uh, in major, for example, uh, weapons companies. Albit Systems is Israel's biggest uh, weapons company. It has investments from all around the world. We will continue to be working so that companies, uh, funds, mm -hmm. uh, individuals, and so on uh, would divest from Elbit Systems because of, uh, well, uh, basically producing these arms that are 
perpetrating the genocide in Gaza right now. Mm. Uh, but also because, let me add, because also of a massive destruction it has all around the world. Uh, uh, you know, and this is again going back to the intersectionality of struggle, mm. uh, that these uh, weapons, these surveillance, for example, technologies that violate human rights are also exported by apartheid Israel to other places around the world, particularly in the global south. Right. Uh, Africa as a continent is the largest, for example, market of that, and we want to see an end to this because of the human rights there as well. Uh, I want to give uh, Ahmed uh, uh, a final chance here to, to express uh, his, his views. And, and, and Ahmed, I would like to get your, your message um, to the people that are, might be using your app, for example, on, on the importance of this movement, maybe a message on behalf uh, of, of your brother. Uh, the whole idea for my app it is just like to prevent what happened to me to happen to another Palestinian to lose his brother to his his family to lose his house. This boycott uh, movement we are not doing it uh, to me, uh, as an anti-Semitic as most of the people saying it's not anti-Semitic or un, uh, or related to this. We are just want a peace in my country. Uh, I don't want to lose another another brother for me i don't want to lose my sister there mm -hmm. and i'm pretty sure that there is a lot of uh, other palestinians who wanted the same thing they don't want to lose their house now how many uh, the destruction happened in uh, my country in gaza and this uh, genocide i i think like uh, the uh, the last uh, statistics say that more than 70 percent or 60 uh, percent like that's a lot like and we wanted to prevent uh, that happened mm. or at least if we couldn't prevent it i don't want my money to go in this destruction that's the whole idea of my app thank you so much ahmed alice and saleh for joining us here on the stream today for such an important conversation and uh, thank you all for watching don't forget you can continue this conversation online if you have a comment about our show you can talk to us on social media and if you have a topic that you would like to see discussed here on this show please join us you can use the hashtag or the handle AJStream and we'll look into it take care and I'll see you soon That was a discussion on uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions against the state of Israel. And we'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment uh, for uh, the Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Thursday, December 14th, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit.
music of uh, In Vogue with the track entitled Don't Let Go. And right now we want to go to the question of reparations uh, for the African continent. Uh, let's listen in. Africa now wants reparations for slavery. Delegates at a summit in Ghana reignited debates on the irreparable harm the transatlantic slave trade inflicted on Africa and Africans, saying they'll push for redress. A key outcome of the summit was the setting up of a global reparations fund. A report by a special UN forum appears to back Africa in this quest, saying reparation is a cornerstone of justice in the 21st century. So this week on the program, we ask, just how practical is the idea of reparations for slavery? And should it be Africa's preoccupation? I'm Beatrice Marshall. Welcome to Talk Africa. Well, let's now bring in our panel of experts joining in from Pretoria. Evaristo Benyera, a professor in the African Department of Political Sciences, University of South Africa. In Berlin, Dr. Hannah Hankins Evans, attorney and lecturer in European Union law and international economic law. And in Washington, D.C., Nikechi Taifa, executive director, reparation education project, all joining via Zoom. A warm welcome to you all and thank you for joining in this discussion. I want to get your views first, all of you, and let me start off with you, Nikichi. Delegates at a reparation summit in Ghana have agreed to establish a global reparation fund to push for compensation for the millions of Africans enslaved centuries ago during the transatlantic slave trade. Why is there a growing demand for slave reparations? Well, there is a growing demand because it has never been paid. It is a debt that is owed that is still outstanding after all of these uh, hundreds of years. But I might caution, it's not just for uh, slavery and the enslavement era, but it's living legacies that uh, last down to today, the, the enslavement, the extraction of over 300 uh, million Africans from the continent, the development of the continent, the uh, colonialism, the neocolonialism, uh, and the like. So my understanding that this reparations uh, fund is to um, allow Africa to further develop its reparations strategy, mm -hmm. uh, do it in concert with what's happening in the Caribbean and in the other parts of the diaspora, um, and come up with a, a, a body of experts and a joint legal um, strategy um, for reparatory justice. Uh, Germany paid reparations to uh, the Jews. The uh, United States paid reparations to the Japanese Americans for their unjust in uh, incarceration during World War II. There were feeble efforts made mm -hmm. pursuant to the Native American Claims Act with respect to indigenous uh, uh, populations. But even more uh, atrocious, reparations were in fact paid after the end of various enslavement eras. They just weren't paid to black folks. They were paid to um, the former enslavers. They were paid in the United States to the former white enslavers after um, uh, um, the 13th Amendment. They were paid in, in uh, Haiti paid uh, reparations, was forced to pay reparations to France um, after winning its freedom. And those reparations continued all the way down right. through 1947. Britain, just the last one, Britain 
paid reparations after its abolition of slavery, not to the formerly uh, enslaved, but to the former white enslavers. And those reparation payments continue all the way down through 2015. It is a debt that is owed, that's never been paid, and it's, it's come due. Hannah, let me get your view. Have Africa and African descendants been left out? Yes, uh, certainly. I, I agree with what Mitichi um, has said in that regard, that uh, the wrong, the historic wrong, has never been undone. And, of course, there is there are legal barriers that will that hinder the effective fulfillment and payment of reparations that are also being brought forward these days and since the beginning of time since this demand was being um, vocalized however law was also was also a key factor in the subjugation and in the oppression of enslaved africans and of people that were colonized in in africa so and we need to understand that this, you know, col colonialism in that sense has not ended. Mm -hmm. My research um, revolves around um, post-colonial theories, and you can see in the structure of this world today that we, that certain dependencies are still upheld, particularly in our economic system as we know today. And many of our forefathers and liberators such as Kwame Nkrumah, for example, he saw the international trade and investment laws as central to the liberation and to a just world order. Right. Uh, Professor Benyera, your take. I heard um, a talk about the transatlantic slave trade. To the best of my memory, the Atlantic Ocean never enslaved anybody. It was the British and the Americans. So the first port of call is to call a spade a spade. There was never a transatlantic slave trade. What was there was the British and or the European and American slave trade. Mm -hmm. We are not seeing black, the black race being involved in a genuine discussion for reparations the way that Jews were reparated. And there are a, a lot of examples that my co-panelists have mentioned. And the question is that, why is it that the black race is not taken seriously when it comes to the issue of reparations? You ask, why is it that the Germans are not serious about reparating the Herero and the Nama people in Namibia? The answer is that the black race is not part of the human race. We don't have human rights. Mm -hmm. Therefore, we are not viewed as human. Therefore, when they talk about reparating humans, they are talking about reparating Germans and Jews because those qualify, they qualify to be classified as humans. Yeah. We are not humans as the black race. And this is why we are, we, are, we are talking about a history of being enslaved, being colonized. And even today, slavery continues, but in a different format. So my take is that until the black race joins the realms of the human reparations will continue to be a token or at worst a fuss. Right. Hannah, let me wrap you in here. Africa um, is still suffering, but there's still no agreement at all about all the harm that has been done um, on the continent. Therefore, reparations are yet to come. Is that your take as well? Yes, and I agree with my, um, my learned friends here on these, the points that have been made. I do believe that our world is structured around anti-blackness and blackness was placed 
at the bottom of a hierarchy in in who was granted or who was seen as human. And there is a history of dehumanization of black people that started with the enslavement of Africans and the trafficking of these people and treatment as property. And it was justified by coining it as a kind of Christian duty of uh, white people to save the savages. And it's not even hidden in the history books. If we look for it, it's very explicitly referred to that international law is the law of white men. And it is their right, it was coined as a right for them to invade and to conquer and to to exploit people and deprive them of their humanity. And it was done particularly to black people. So the continuance of this dehumanization and anti-blackness is something we see today. We see it on the borders of Europe where, where thousands of Africans are drowning. We see it in the continuance of disenfranchisement in, in the Americas of black people that cannot partake mm-hmm. and have not yet seen any reparatory justice in that regard, be it monetary, but also in, the, in restoring humanity. Because until now, it is even sometimes denied that this is a construct that, race, that the racialization of black people actually occurred. It is still pretended or proxies are used for race, where actually race is a key factor in the decision why something is not granted to a group of people. And we can see this across the diaspora and on the continent itself. For example, Germany and Namibia, if we look at the relationship of both states, and Namibia is one of the number one recipients of development aid. So why is that? So we want to keep them at the periphery, you know. There is a certain, uh, a, a, a strong will behind maintaining the world order as it is. So this is also informing the, the resistance against paying reparations. And if we look to South Africa, for example, even in a black-led state, we have not seen the justice that, you know, would be due to black people. And there is laws in place, like the Black Economic Empowerment um you know, laws and legislation that is supposed to, you know, kind of economically also um, undo historical wrongs. And it's not necessarily, it has not really um, bridged the immense inequality that we see in that country. Now imagine looking to the United States, for example, without such a government in place that is, you know, working in your interest. I think there is a long way to go, and of course we all are aware that it also will take political channels, that it will be a political outcome, because we do lack power, and that is exactly the outcome of what you know the historical colonialism and neocolonialism is meant to do, to keep certain power um, imbalances in place. All right. So Nikichi... Let's go back to the uh, reparation summit that happened in Ghana and what the continent is requesting. Who is expected to put money into such a fund? What is the end game here? This fund that came, uh, that is to come out of this conference is not reparations. The fund is to help organize mm-hmm. the, um, uh, the instrumentalities that will help to strategize and to bring about of the claim or the demand for reparations, but that's not a reparations fund. That's my uh, understanding. It's more for the mobilization uh, to be able to organize around the issue. So I can't speak to exactly who's putting the money into it, but my understanding is that uh, it is to go towards establishing uh, a continent-wide 
uh, strategy uh, for Africa uh, in concert and collaboration with what's going on with respect to this, uh, the countries in the Caribbean and the diaspora uh, mm-hmm. as a whole. Uh, Africa is coming a bit late to this conversation, if, if I'm, I may say. I know CARICOM, the Community of Caribbean Nations, back around in 2013 established its 10-point program. As I said, there's been efforts um, in the diaspora in the United States. But right now what Africa is looking at is not just the, and thank you, my brother, I will never use transatlantic slave chain again because you're absolutely uh, correct. The, the Atlantic Ocean did not do anything. It was people that did. Uh, but not just looking at that aspect, but at the destabilization of the continent of the Africa as a whole as a result of um, um, a millions of people right. uh, being forcibly extracted from there and, and just what the results of that was on, on the continent uh, itself and the effect of colonialism and neocolonialism. Anna, I want to find out from um, the past experience and uh, looking at the German uh, position, for instance, or the Japanese, who is expected to, f- uh, to put money into this fund for Africa? Well, of course, um, you know, there have been several demands addressed to the German government, to Germany as the, you know, as, as the one inherited, that has also inherited the wealth and the position today. And, um, of course, that is not, not everyone that was involved. We have corporations involved. We have universities involved. There's many institutions that you know, when we look, take a closer look at the history of um, the enslavement and colonialism, there were many more beneficiaries in that regard, you know, and we can see it in the accumulation of wealth in the global north. So, um, of course, the first addressee is the German government, and they have already um, denied at least also taking responsibility. So that's, uh, that's something, you know, that... Um, where activists, activists are still pushing because it is said that during the time of these cruelties, it was not prohibited. But we have, as um, has been pointed out by the other speakers, we have seen in the history that it was possible. Reparations were paid. It was, however, not to the ones that um, you know suffered harm, and um, also not to black people in specific, specifically, but maybe to other victims of. German cruelty. So, Hannah, you know, um, some advisors have uh, talked about the um, uh, reparations, as, as saying that compensations are based on moral and legal rights and the dignity of uh, the people. What exactly does this mean? Legally speaking, I've referred already to what is being brought against a claim for reparations. It's the legality. But with regard to the legality, we need to understand that legality is a construct. What was legal yesterday can be illegal tomorrow. So, you know, this can change. And we need to understand how law enables the oppression overall, you know, that it is not a fact, it's not a science in that sense that it can, you know, that this was the status quo. No, it was Mm -hmm. constructed in a way. And you made slavery was illegal. The enslavement of people was illegal. There was an exception made for black people, you know, and it was upheld in courts by arguing that they lack humanity in the in comparison to, let's say, white people or people that were non-black. But this is a construct. I mean, today we all agree that we all 
carry the same core of humanity. And this right. is a, a false narrative. However, it has not been undone with regards to the history, and it has not done with regards to the still economic effects that and you know effects that can be still felt. And this is on the one hand, of course, econ of an economic nature, but it's also, as for example, James Baldwin has said, what it does to your mind, what it does to you, how you feel about yourself, you know, it's it's really the dehumanization that has, that has been, that we need to view as a, a much broader impact on, on our community, that had a much broader impact. And so it's also part, in my opinion, of rep reparation, part of it is restoring humanity and really acknowledging that, you know, from a moral standpoint, something was done wrong and needs to be done right. It needs to be repaired. Right. Dr. Benier, I want to look at that acknowledgement that uh, Hannah is talking about because we have seen um, some of the European monarchs, Britain, Britain's King Charles III, the Belgium's King Philippe, they have both stopped short of apologizing for colonial era atrocities. Why do you think that is? And how would you respond to an argument that reparations can be seen as a form of acknowledgement and an attempt to rectify past wrongs? they did not stop short of acknowledging they refused to acknowledge you see it's 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 there for everybody to see there are two victims of um, imperial germans the herero nama in namibia and the jews today look at the extent to which germany is going to protect jewish interest to protect israeli interest and they refused even to acknowledge that there was a genocide in Namibia, yet they drove a whole nation of people into the desert. There are photographs and there's everything, but they say, we will not admit that we did it. We will not admit that it is a genocide. In fact, we will not pay reparations. What we can do is to build a road. There is just one reason why the Germans refused to treat African victims of their past the way that they treat Jewish victims of their past. It's because Africans are not people. Africans are not humans to the Germans. But let me rewind a bit and go back to how I conceptualize reparation. Reparation is not only what I lost, but it is in addition to what I lost, what you also gained. So Euro North America was developed by Africa. So it's not what Africa lost, human resources, gold, diamonds, silver. It's also those buildings in New York those buildings in France, those buildings in the United Kingdom that were built by us Africans. So reparations is much broader than giving us money, which, by the way, is 0.0001% of what they accumulated from denying us our humanity. All right. On that note, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we will continue our discussion on Africa's push for slavery reparations. To stay with us. Welcome back to Talk Africa. Let's continue with our discussion. Still with me, Professor Evaristo Banyera, Dr. Anna Hankins-Evans, and Nikichi Taifa. 
Well, Nikichi, you know, activists have said reparations should go beyond direct financial payments to also include issues like development aid, the return of colonized uh, resources, and systemic corrections of oppressive policies and laws. What is your thought on that? Oh, I agree 100%. I always say that the harms from the enslavement era and its living legacies were multifaceted. Thus, the remedies must be multifaceted as well. A reparation settlement can be uh, fashioned in as many ways as necessary to, um, um, uh, you know, to deal with the uh, all of the harms and the injuries from the enslavement era. And again, it's living legacies that last down through to uh, today. There's also the issue of the return of artifacts and things like that that have been snatched. Um, from the, the continent and taken to uh, other uh, lands. There is um, the change in policies and, and procedures. There's so many ways, truthful textbooks, that um, development resources that a reparation settlement can be um, accomplished. The, uh, the right to self-determination, um, um, issues in the United States in terms of making a multiracial democracy real for those who want that, repatriation resources for those who want to return um, to uh, the continent of Africa or to some other place. So there are many ways in which a reparations settlement can, in fact, be um, fashioned. And financial direct cash payments is only one very, very, very small part of the whole. Right. Professor Benyera, should it uh, go beyond the financial uh, atonement? It should go beyond money. And for me, the first thing is acknowledgement of the harm that was done. Uh, King Charles was in Kenya recently. We thought that he was going to apologize, especially for the brutal way in which uh, his ancestors put down the Mau Mau rebellion. But guess what? Instead of apologizing, he looked for a Kenyan man who fought on the side of the British. This gentleman threw away the three medals which Imperial Britain had given to him in fear of the Mau Mau rebellion. King Charles went and gave him back replica medals. How about that for reparation and acknowledgement? Mm -hmm. So these people, Beatrice, are unrepentant. These people don't respect us. This is the truth. Otherwise, what explains the, the behavior by King Charles? They went to the Barbados there. They were, they were asked to apologize in Barbados. Mm -hmm. They did not. They never acknowledge. They never admit. All they do is to sugarcoat it and say, oh, it's a very difficult past between our two nations. No, it's not a difficult past. The biggest crime that the slave traders perpetrated was to cut the black race from their roots. You are now called a black American. You are neither black nor American. You are black African. You are black American. Who are you exactly? For me, that is the greatest atrocity to to somebody's identity, and so, then you render them a colonial project. So, Professor Benyera, how would you want Africa to approach this issue in terms of uh, getting an apology or getting reparations uh, from uh, slave traders? We have got the African Union, we have got the various um, regional blocs, such as SADAC. France still operates the Franc-Afrique, the United Kingdom still operates the Commonwealth. The bodies are there, the... For example, just, just one example, the king can actually draft a public apology to everybody. Once they've apologized and acknowledged, then we can begin to talk and move forward. As long as they refuse 
that they were brutal to us, that they experimented on us, that they did all sorts of inhumane things on us, we cannot move forward and talk about reparations in earnest. So an admission is the first thing. And by the way, we may not even want their money. We may even end by an acknowledgement. Then we move forward. But as long as an acknowledgement is there, the money is not that meaningful. Hannah, in this uh, process, though, how will, it, uh, how will we ensure that the benefits are there for the masses, for the countries that were affected? The conference um, is the first step that this is a good platform to mobilize uh, people, you know, to get on board and to discuss. And, of course, you know, it will take also expert committees to establish, you know, the the modus operandi of payments of such reparations or you know, the, for example, the establishment of a fund. So these discussions are being held by the people in question. But it's always used also by Western state as an excuse of not paying reparations. And that's why I think it is a time for these discussions, but it is a time also to first establish that there is a right, um, you know, to reparations and there is a right to um and do historical um, injustices. All right, so I want to get your winding up comments. And let me start off with you, Nikechi. What alternative solutions, or are there alternative solutions that can be used to address the historical injustices and disparities resulting from the slave trade? Well, I think the solution is the payment of reparations. The solution is for um, Africa, the diaspora, the Caribbean, and the like to be on one page with respect to uh, what the harms were, what the injuries were in each of our respective jurisdictions, and come up with a joint strategy uh, for our reparations, not just globally, but specific to the uh, specific places where we were each dropped off at or uh, the continent, you know, itself. The many models that are out there, we're not, it's, it's not a blank slate. Reparations have, in fact, been paid throughout uh, the centuries. We simply need to look at those models and ensure that we are looked at, as my colleague said, as human beings with a right as well as a right as, as every other people have had uh, to repair, to amend, to healing, and for justice. Professor Benera? All we are demanding for Beatrice is the right to rights. We also want to be heard like equal human beings. In Africa, through Ubuntu, we believe that humanity is indivisible. We are one humanity. We are one human race. We need to know our history. We need to know our heritage. We cannot be Jamaicans, Barbadosians, and so on and so on. Where in Africa were we taken from? There is need for a fund to fund these, not researches, but because the data is there, the information is there. They ju those with this information, just like they brought out the artifacts, they must just bring out this information and say, people that were resettled in this part of the Caribbean were taken from what was called the Gulf of Guinea. These people came from what was called the, the slave coast, now Nigeria. So the first thing is to, to, for us to regain our humanity, to regain our history, to regain our roots. After that, we can talk about everything else because without being full humans, without being accepted into the realms of humanity, we will continue to be experimented upon. We will continue to die on the high seas while we are trying to go to, to, the, to the global north.
instead of staying at home because the home was rendered inhospitable. The home is being rendered ungovernable. Therefore, we are going there to the first world where things are supposedly good and nice. All right. Anna, you have the final thoughts. I do agree with everything that has been said. Absolutely. And um, money needs to be paid. That's the first step, you know. I do believe that this world is in inherently an anti-black and was structured around this. There needs to be done more than that. There needs to be a restoration of humanity. But also we need to look at certain structures. Like why is it that black people are among the most vulnerable in the world, wherever we should look, in, in whatever society we look. We see the, the reality of African Americans, black Americans, who do not have the freedom of movement, you know, because it's not economically viable for them to even travel to African countries and how that hinders them to reconnect with where they were taken. So it needs to be thought a lot broader and more structural um, than money, but money would be a first step and I think I hope that I will live to see that day. All right, but that's all we have time for on this edition of Talk Africa. A big thank you to our guests. Everisto Benyera, a professor in the African Department of Political Sciences at the University of South Africa. Dr. Anna Hankins Evans, attorney and lecturer in European Union law and international economic law. And Nikichi Taifa, executive director, Reparation Education Project. Remember, you can be a part of this conversation through our social media platforms on Facebook and X, formerly known as Twitter. And you can also watch this and other editions of Talk Africa on our YouTube playlist. Do join us again next week for more at Talk Africa. For me, Beatrice Marshall and the team here in Nairobi. Until next time, it's goodbye. Welcome back, and that was a panel discussion on Africa and reparations. That's going to conclude our program for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Thursday, December 14th, 2023. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out with the music of the legendary organist, Shirley Scott, with from the album entitled Now is the Time. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.